Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you today. Warm welcome to those who are joining us for the first time. I hope you're not just surviving, but I hope that you're thriving in COVID-19. And we have been challenged over the past few weeks to get out of our comfort zone and to start adding to our faith. And this morning, we continue by adding a fifth virtue, adding godliness. Our scripture comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Now, we have been memorizing the scripture. It's tedious work, but it is so worth it. And I still remember scriptures that I memorized as a child, and I can bring them to remembrance at any time. Once again, I'm going to ask you to repeat the bolded section part by part right after me, and then we'll read the rest of the passage together in one voice. We can do this. Are you ready? Here we go. For this very reason, make every effort. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance. Okay, one last one. Here we go. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness. Okay, now let's read the rest together in one voice. And to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, church. Thanks for participating with us. The four uh, in the booth in the back are just yelling it at the top of their lungs. So well done. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning. Thank you for continuing to speak to us through 2 Peter chapter 1. We realize that your word never grows old. It never becomes irrelevant. It is continually speaking to our lives. And this morning, I pray, oh God, that you challenge us in the area of godliness. We want to grow in godliness. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to be like you, oh God. And so, Father, we're praying that you would speak to the deepest places in our lives that there would be some systemic changes in us, not just a surface-level change, but a deep inner work of God, your sanctification work in us, God, through the power of your Spirit. So, Father, speak to your people today across the bandwidth, we pray, in different places of the world, in different homes. We pray that you'd meet them. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You may be seated in your homes today. The word godliness is a tricky theological word. You see, at face value, it may be literally read and easily misunderstood as usurping godlike status. After all, was it not Satan whose fatal flaw was his desire to be worshipped and be, to be greater than God himself? Was it not this same Satan in the form of a serpent who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1-5 when he said, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil? See, the desire to be like God or take the place of God or being our own God is sinful through and through. So why does the Bible say that we should add to our faith godliness? Furthermore, why do we never see the word godliness in the Old Testament? Why is it exclusively New Testament language? Well, surely it was not because there were no God-fearing people living during those times. Because many of the heroes and heroines of the Bible and of our faith were righteous people. They were full of faith in God. It is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the Apostle Peter prefaced his second letter with a powerful statement about godliness. Listen to these words. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of Him. He has given us what? Everything. Living a godly life is not some idealistic dream that is unattainable in this life. You see, in Christ, we already have everything we could ever want and anything we could ever need to live a godly life. Now, friends, it was Jesus who made godliness attainable. He was fully divine, meaning he himself was God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Yet at the same time, he was fully human, yet without sin, meaning that he was a godly person. Therefore, today, we can equate godliness with Christ-likeness. This morning, I want to exhort you towards cultivating godliness in your life by examining three particular phrases that we find in the New Testament. The first is this, an exhortation to godly living. An exhortation to godly living. I wonder how much of our lifestyle reflects our faith. One of the most sobering passages in the Bible is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus said that it is not enough to just know him. Scripture says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will of God for us is not just to know God, but to do the will of God by living a godly lifestyle. Now, what does this look like? Well, there are two sets of choices that we must make when it comes to godly living. The first is this, we must choose yes and no. See, these two little words have the power to radically change the trajectory of our lives. And the right words said at the right time will lead us on that path to godliness. But a wrong word said at the wrong time will lead us on the path to ungodliness. It was the Greek philosopher, mathematician Pythagoras, most famous for his theorem for triangles. What he once said, the oldest and shortest words, yes and no, are those which require the most thought. Let me read that again. The oldest and shortest words, yes and no, are those which require the most thought. One of the defining moments 
in our Christian lives is the moment of our salvation, the moment where we come to know Jesus. Everything changed when we believed in him and confessed him as our Lord and Savior. The old has gone and the new has come. This is what we call being born again. And this event should inform all daily decisions thereafter. Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's the grace of God. That's the subject. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say yes to self-control, yes to uprightness, and yes to godly living. And apart from the grace of God, my friends, we will always choose the wrong choice. But with an awareness of the grace of God working inside of me, working inside of you, we can make God-honoring choices. Secondly, I want you to know that there is this tension between the present and the future. We must make decisions based on knowing the present and knowing the future. We live in this tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. That means Christians cannot solely be preoccupied with the now. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, he advised, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promises for both the present life and the life to come. The Apostle Paul used a very practical example in order to come to a very spiritual example. You see, the Greek word under this text is gymnase, from which we receive the word gymnasium. And no one will deny that physical training is an important part of our lives in order to stay healthy, in order to take care of our bodies. But no matter how much you work out, your body will still deteriorate over time. Truth. It does not give us any guarantees. Therefore, physical training only has some value in the, in the pre present life, in this physical life. We can be physically fit, yet we can be spiritually weak. And the spiritual, unlike the physical, affects not only some parts of our life, but every part of our life. It not only holds promises for the present, but it holds promises for life to come. So we must ask ourselves the questions. Will the benefits be physical or spiritual? Will the benefits be temporary or eternal? Ask yourself those questions whenever you're making a decision. We need to make decisions that are long-term instead of short-term. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, the apostle Peter exhorted, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed of its coming. See, only those who live godly lives will enjoy God forever. Second point this morning is an exhortation to godly sorrow. An exhortation to godly sorrow. I know what you're thinking as you're listening to me speak today to you. What does sorrow have to do with godliness? Well, we learned that there's a strong correlation between these two topics based on what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
When we dig deeper into the context behind the text, we realize that Paul had hurt the Corinthians because of his firm response in 1 Corinthians against the false teachers that opposed his apostleship and caused the church to lose confidence in him. And so he writes a second letter to the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-11 to said, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Though he admitted in this letter that it caused the Corinthians temporary sorrow, he knew he had to write it in order to lead the Corinthians instead of leave the Corinthians. Godly sorrow is the choice to see the error of our way and repent. Paul demonstrated godliness by not being afraid of having tough conversations, especially with those people whom he loved. He initiated reconciliation and was grieved in his heart by discord. He did those hard things that God asked him to do because he was more interested about forming godly character and less interested about being right. Similarly, there is a conviction that only the Holy Spirit could bring upon the offended Corinthians when they were confronted with Paul's words. Godly sorrow is the desire to come to the end of life without any regrets. I don't want to reach the end of my life and have a series of regrets from my past failures. I want to reconcile my relationships. I want to forgive. I want to be restored into right relationship with people and with God. And because they were forgiven, because of their salvation, because they were acting in accordance with their salvation, they were forgiven and so they also forgave. And therefore we too, because we have been forgiven, we also forgive. Godly sorrow produces some beautiful traits that would not surface any other way. First we see the word earnestness. This is The choice to speak from the heart instead of speaking from the mind or loosely from the mouth. Second, we see the word eagerness. This is the urgency to fix the relationship now instead of later because we do not like living in animosity with each other. Third, we see the word indignation. This is that righteous anger against what is wrong. Fourth, we see the word alarm. Our broken relationships with each other affect our relationship with God. There's a lot to be alarmed about. Fifth, we see the word longing and the choice to make things better, not worse. Sixth, we see the word concern. We care about each other instead of hating each other. Seventh, we see the word readiness. Let us do everything we can do to right every wrong. I like how the message, a modern reading of the Bible, translates 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. 
Who knew godly sorrow could have such positive effects? And until we have this godly sorrow, my friends, we will not add godliness to our faith. Third point this morning is an exhortation to godly jealousy. An exhortation to godly jealousy. In addition to godly sorrow, in addition to godly living, I'm going to make things a little bit more complicated this morning by saying that we need to have godly jealousy. Now, isn't jealousy a negative trait? Why, yes, it is. Jealousy if, is wrong if motivated out of selfishness, but jealousy is right if motivated out of selflessness. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, explained the reason for his jealousy for the Corinthian church. In the scripture, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Paul is doing that which he had heard and seen God say and do throughout Scripture to the Israelites. If you look back into the Old Testament, the Lord described his own character in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to idols or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the character of God. God is jealous for the affection of his people. God is jealous for the attention of his people. Just as a husband is jealous for the love and the purity of his wife, so too Christ is jealous for his bride. That is the church. And as an apostle, Paul adopted this jealousy from God himself for the purity of the Corinthians so that they would remain faithful to their one husband and be presented to him as a virgin bride. As deception increased, that same deception from the garden, now infiltrating the church, godly jealousy had to increase all the more. Friends, I want you to know that I am jealous for all 800 of you with a godly jealousy. I sincerely mean that from the bottom of my heart. I am jealous for WPA. I am jealous for the 800 of you that call this church your home church. And I hope that you too, all 800 of you, are also jealous of me with a godly jealousy. For as with a husband and wife, we should be jealous with a godly jealousy for our spouse. As a parent, we should be jealous with godly jealousy for our children. Okay, I think we can all agree on that. But let's take it one more step further. As a believer, we need to be jealous with a godly jealousy for one another. Amen must care about each other so much that we will not allow the other to stay deceived by the enemy. We need to hold one another accountable in our pursuit of godliness. See, godliness is not interested with any counterfeits, any trends, but with truth. And I refuse to watch you believe a counterfeit Christ other than Christ 
crucified, Christ resurrected. I refuse to watch you receive a counterfeit spirit because there's many spirits in this age, a counterfeit spirit other than the Holy Spirit. I refuse to watch you receive another counterfeit gospel other than the gospel that saved you. See, the scriptures referred to Jewish myths and old wives' tales and endless genealogies and foolish controversies and quarrels about the law. And today, friends, we must be on guard against that prosperity gospel and the therapeutic gospel and the universalistic, universalistic gospel and that mystic gospel and that self-help gospel. There is one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until we have this godly jealousy for each other, we will not add godliness to our faith. As we conclude this morning, you may hear the word godlessness and immediately think that this means people who do not know God, people who are not saved. We're talking about non-Christians, but let's remember that both Peter and Paul were writing to Christians. All the epistles that we find in the New Testament are spoken to churches, Christian churches. You see, Christians can be ungodly. Why else would Peter say and stress, add godliness to your faith? It is obvious that Christians can be absent of godliness but still belong to the faith. It's not automatic once you become a Christian. It is something that requires much work. There is a telling scripture that I want to leave you with today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that talks about terrible times in the last days. Paul, he compiled a list of descriptors of the people who would live during that time. And to be honest, it sounds very similar to the way people are living and behaving today. And he ends his list with this cautionary statement, and I want you to hear it today. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. You see, there is no power in choices made in your own strength. Each time we choose to do something without God, we are denying his power at work in our lives. And the power comes when we allow God to work inside of us, to work in and through us. It is his power, not our own power, not by might, nor by power, but by the spirit of God. And so I ask you these final questions today for reflection. Do you have the appearance of godliness or do you live a godly life? Reflect on that for a moment. Do you have the appearance, the facade of godliness or are you really godly? Do you have that Christian exterior but a heart that is so far from Christ? Do you act the part on Sunday but forget him from Monday to Saturday? Friends, I want you to know today Godliness is not an act. Godliness is not an appearance. Godliness is a lifestyle. Let's pray.